Welcome to Dark Crossroads Podcast, hosted by Roxanne Fletcher. This is your stop for all things true crime and paranormal. From the infamous story of the New Bedford Highway Killer to the chilling tale of the Black Eyed Children, Dark Crossroads Podcast is a truly deep dive into the stories that frighten and fascinate you. All links to the show will be provided in this episode's description. And don't forget to let us know what you think of today's episode wherever you listen to podcasts. Dark Crossroads Podcast is brought to you by Problem Wildlife. Problem Wildlife serves all of Western Massachusetts and has been humanely protecting your house and your family from unwanted pests for over 20 years. Take back your space with an animal control service that you can trust. They are family-owned, fully licensed, and are knowledgeable and dependable. To find out more about their services, simply visit their website at www.problemwildliferemoval.com. Again, that is www.problemwildliferemoval.com, and their information will be included in our show notes. Today, we will be covering a case of how a mysterious 911 call led to the discovery of a woman unconscious on her bedroom floor and the questions that still remain today in this story. Our story begins on June 14, 1964, when Jamie Santos was born to Pete and Dottie Santos. Jamie was one of a kind. She has been described as independent, strong, and living life on her own terms. In October 1991, at the age of 27, Jamie lived alone with her two cats, Prince and Bandit, for company in an apartment in Wheeling, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago in Cook County. Family and friends meant the world to her. She was very close with her family. She would cook dinner for her parents once a week, and her sister, Lori, was described as her best friend. She was generous with her loved ones such as buying her aunt a new wardrobe after she lost weight or bailing a friend out of jail. The Chicago Tribune reported, if you were sick, she would be the one to bring you soup and juice. Jamie was single, but she aspired to be married and have kids, but she wasn't having much luck with relationships. It wasn't for lack of effort. She had had a lot of boyfriends, but finding the right one just hadn't been in the cards yet. Though Jamie had a big heart, she wasn't one to be messed with. Jamie was dyslexic, but her strong determination drove her to read the dictionary and memorize words. She is also described as being tough as nails, streetwise, and fiercely independent. In an article about Jamie, the Chicago Tribune described her as one tough cookie. Her beauty and streetwise demeanor served her well in her job as an exotic dancer performing under the stage name Sasha. Though she was pondering in a different career as an interior decorator, a model, an agent, or possibly an art gallery owner, she was also pondering the possibility of going to college. Her parents said that it was hard for her to give up a job where she could call the shots and was not, quote, a nine-to-five kid. She was earning several hundred dollars a week, 
was very successful as a dancer and enjoyed making a lot of money for only a few nights of work each week. According to a 1991 Chicago Tribune article, she performed at bachelor parties, private parties, and as a showgirl in a bar. Her dad told the Chicago Tribune, Jamie enjoyed her money. She made trips to Jamaica. She drove a $25,000 car for at the time. I That was a lot. She loved to shop. Her theory was a woman's place is in the mall. Jamie set her parents' minds at ease about her line of work by explaining that she had a driver with her at all times, ensuring them that any rowdy customers didn't threaten her or harass her. She also had been known to leave parties and events if she felt that the situation wasn't right or got a bad feeling about the customers. Sadly, Jamie was never able to stop dancing or go to college or get her dream career. Someone took her life before she ever got the chance. The week before Jamie's murder was filled with normal activities. On Tuesday, October 22, 1991, she had an old high school friend do her hair for her. Looking back, her friend states that she thought Jamie wasn't her usual self that day. She told the Chicago Tribune, usually when she walked into a room, she kind of bounced in, laughing and telling jokes and doing something. But she was kind of quiet, a little on the sad side. She states that she had a strange feeling about it. Later that evening, Jamie and her parents had their usual weekly dinner and they stated that they felt she acted fine and normal. On Friday night, October 25th, Jamie spent time with her sister. They went to a Mexican restaurant, played some pool, and then went to their favorite hangout spot until 3 or 4 in the morning. Her sister said that Jamie acted normal throughout the night. The next day, she had three parties for work. Her driver stated that everything went fine and nothing was out of the normal. Sunday, October 27th, was a low-profile quiet day, as most Sundays were for her. She told a friend that she wasn't feeling well and that she was going to rent some movies and stay in for the night. Nothing suggested that Jamie was in fear for her life or that anyone had been harassing her. On Monday, October 28th, 1991, at 11.31 a.m., an unidentified man makes a 911 call from a public payphone in a shopping center located at Buffalo Grove Road and Dundee Road, a few blocks from Jamie's home. This is the actual 911 call that was made. Please be aware that the audio in this recording can be hard to understand at times. 
can you hear me? This is Buffalo Grove 911. Yeah, I can barely hear you. All right. He's calling from an address in Buffalo Grove. Yeah. I, uh, when were you at that house, sir? Part of me wants to be instinctually suspicious of the caller. At first, he sounds a little emotional, like he's trying to remain calm in order to be coherent for the 911 operator. He led with an exact address and a reason for the emergency, trying to be as clear as possible. And I can only imagine how someone in this situation would act or respond And I understand that everybody will respond differently in an emergency. But I don't know, the way he seems on the phone just seems a little weird and off and different. He was talking quickly and he seemed a little nervous. And as the call goes on, he begins to speak to the wheeling 911 operator. His answers become flat, one-worded, and even dismissive. You would think that now that he's talking to wheeling, where the actual emergency is taking place, He'd offer more information. It's obvious the Buffalo Grove dispatcher becomes suspicious of him because he called Buffalo Grove 911 in order to report an emergency that happened in Wheeling. This suggests that he took the time to distance himself from the area before making the call. But it is discovered that by calling 911 from across the road, he was already in another jurisdiction making him seem miles away and not minutes away from Jamie's house. This fact has made many people suspicious of him, but this could have also been the only payphone around that he was able to get to. Either way, the caller's identity has never been discovered. Something interesting to take note of is that the man carefully corrects the operator. The man states, Yeah, get someone to 1765 Stonehenge Court in Wheeling immediately. There is a young woman there who is not breathing. She is turning blue. Operator number one, 1765 Stonehenge. The man states, Stonehenge, hedge, like a bush. When the operator asks the caller if he was in the home, the man says, bye, and hangs up. Fire and paramedics arrive only five minutes after the call at 11.36 a.m followed by the Wheeling police. They find the door to her house closed, but not locked. There was no sign of a struggle or forced entry. Jamie is eventually found on her bedroom floor, dressed in a knee-length, tie-dyed nightshirt and underwear. When they found her, she was unconscious, but she was still alive. Paramedics rushed her to the Holy Family Hospital in Des Plaines. Though they tried to save her, it was too late. She was pronounced dead at the hospital, and the cause of death was ruled as suffocation. It was determined that an object had been placed over her nose and mouth. Santos put up little resistance as there were no defensive wounds on her body. There were no significant bruises to her internal organs. However, some minor bruises around her face, neck, and mouth appeared. Investigators say that her apartment was neat and there were no signs of a struggle. She had not been sexually assaulted, and there was no drugs in her system. The police have investigated many leads, but have been unable to locate Jamie's killer. Law enforcement was hopeful when they obtained surveillance footage by the payphone, which was at the strip mall a few blocks from her residence, where the 911 call had been made. It showed a man entering and leaving a liquor store about the time of the call, but he had been interviewed, 
and was excluded. There were also fingerprints in Jamie's apartment, but so far, no one has been a match to them. Police released the 911 call, but all leads also failed to turn out the suspect. After months, the leads went cold. The FBI and Chicago police interviewed more than 100 people connected to the case. 15 people took lie detector tests, and investigators questioned at least 5 people who were considered suspects. This investigation leads us to believe the person who called 911 on October 28, 1991 was not the person responsible for Jamie's death, states then-wheeling Deputy Police Chief Michael Herms. The caller may have vital information leading to the identity of the person responsible, Herms said. While we understand the possible reluctance of this person to be identified, we are appealing to the 911 caller to contact us and provide any information he might have. What's really unusual is that in all this time, nobody has called to say they've heard anything, said Herms. It's like everything dried up. Exotic dancers make a lot of money. Jamie kept her money in a deposit envelope in her apartment. That envelope happened to have disappeared and has never been found. Many have tried to tie Jamie's murder to her job as an exotic dancer. She made it a rule to never date anyone from work. Also, when she did date, she preferred men in their 20s or 30s. But to the police, the caller sounded like he was in his 40s or low 50s. Police were quick to say that they don't believe there was a connection between her profession and the murder. No forced entry or signs of struggle led many to believe that Jamie may have known her killer. It's hard to imagine that a woman as savvy as Jamie would let someone unknown to her in her apartment. A few weeks before her murder, Jamie told a friend she was interested in buying a gun, but her family did not believe that she was in any trouble. She wasn't scared of anybody, said her mother. As far as her business went, she had no problems. She worked for legit businesses. If she found out they weren't legit or they were sleazy, she got out of them. And there were several like that. There are some real creeps in that business. Some reports say that Jamie's head was placed on a pillow before she was suffocated. This would also indicate that the perpetrator cared about Jamie. She was not sexually assaulted and there was no clear motive. There was only torment for a family that has spent the last two decades wondering why and who. Jamie's case appeared in season 9 of Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack. The show stated, that there were signs of a struggle, but all news reports and the Wailing Police said that there wasn't. They did also say that the object placed over Jamie's nose and mouth to suffocate her was a pillow. At first, investigators wondered if the caller had killed Jamie. What they did know was that the caller knew her exact address and had been in the apartment before the call because he stated, There's one young woman in there who's not breathing. She's turning blue. According to a later investigation, Jamie was found on the floor in her bedroom. In this position, she was out of view for most people passing by her apartment. How could the caller have seen her and notice lack of breathing unless he was in there, physically in there seeing her? Jamie most likely knew her killer because there was no signs of forced entry. Police believe that she willingly let her killer into her home. I personally do not think that this was a random attack. Questions that still remain to this day. Was this a robbery gone wrong? Why did the man call 911? Is it possible that he felt guilty about hurting Jamie? Who was the mystery caller? 
How did he know she wasn't breathing or even see her? Why did he go to a different county to make the 911 call? Why hasn't he ever come forward? How did police determine he was not the killer? How was it possible that no one saw this man make the call? Was she dating anyone at the time? Who had she stopped dating before her murder? Did her caller reside in her apartment complex also? How did the killer get her to be complicit when suffocating her? Were there two people in the apartment, one to hold her down, the other to suffocate her? Was she sleeping when it occurred? What was bothering her when she visited her friend, and why didn't she tell anyone? We know the caller was most likely inside of her apartment. He probably hasn't come forward out of fear because the case is still unsolved, and he didn't want to get involved, or he is the killer. If it was a caller that called for help, it was maybe because he felt remorse. It was close to noon on a Monday in a shopping center when he made the call from the payphone, so you would think that someone would have seen him. There would have been people everywhere at this time. The murder happened in an apartment complex, but early reports said no one saw or heard anything unusual. Police said the caller was familiar with the area because he corrected the 911 operator when she said Stonehenge instead of Stonehenge. Her killer could very well be someone that she had danced for. Just because she didn't date anyone from work doesn't mean a customer wasn't obsessed with her. Police thought the killer might have been a female. And this does make sense. It would explain why there was no assault, and Jamie probably would have opened the door to a female, especially one that she knew. What doesn't make sense is that Jamie was not tied up and had put up little resistance according to police when she was found, so maybe it could have been two people. If someone is trying to suffocate you, you're conscious, and you're going to fight back. That's just a normal response. Jamie was dressed as if she had been preparing to go to bed or was already in bed when she was attacked. We know she was not drugged because no drugs were found in her system, but she could not have been asleep because police believed that she let her killer into her home unless they had a way to enter, unless she left her door unlocked on accident, or if the person had been there when she fell asleep. I think that there was more going on with Jamie than she let anyone around her know. I think she wanted to buy a gun to protect herself for reasons we may never know. And overall, this case to many people makes no sense. It has been over 30 years now, and police seem no closer to identifying the caller or the killer of Jamie Santos. The details of it seem to lead in various possible directions, and it seems unless the mysterious caller can be identified, it will be impossible to rule them in or out as a suspect. Wheeling police are asking for the public's help in solving this cold case. Police believe that the 911 caller could hold the key to unlocking this mystery. Statements from law enforcement vary on whether they believe the caller was the actual perpetrator of the crime, although they do agree that this person could hold information valuable to the investigation. If you know anything about the murder of Jamie Santos or believe that you may know the identity of the mysterious 911 caller, please contact the Wheeling Police Department at 847-459-2632.
Alright guys, so thank you so much for hanging out again today. For more details on the podcast or the cases that we covered, then head on over to the website www.darkcrossroadspodcast.com where we have all of the episodes, um, information about the podcast, merch, and also a blog covering every single case and it going into more description including links to all the places that you need to make phone calls to or resources regarding the case. You can also find us on uh, most social media platforms. Don't forget to like, share, rate, review, subscribe wherever you're listening to us. You can subscribe to the podcast. There is a link in all episodes in the notes that will send you to our subscription page and with that you will get bonus content, discount on future merch, and a lot of other extra goodies and kind of behind the scenes information. Um, So every single donation through the subscription in any other place goes straight to the podcast. It helps fund research and it really helps us out to keep this podcast going. So before I go, I just want to thank all of my listeners for your continued support and for sending in cases that you wanted covered and stories that you wanted read on the podcast. We truly accept all stories, scary, paranormal, um, funny, anything that you want read or you want me to know, send it in. And any cases that you want covered, please send in. You can email those to darkcrossroadspodcast at gmail.com. And with all of this said, Please don't forget to be weird, stay different, and don't trust anyone. The Curiosity Box delivers a cerebral fascination of Vsauce right to your door through engaging science toys, surprising puzzles, and books that expand our understanding of the universe. The creators worked together to create, design, and handpick each illuminating item in the Curiosity Box, including constructive kits, brain games, and imaginative custom t-shirts. Every quarterly delivery will turn your home into a laboratory of wonder. If you have always been curious about the world around you, then subscribe to the Curiosity Box and have access to the most popular science education network on YouTube as it energizes a community of Earth's most inquisitive minds with videos spanning science, math, and the human experience. And now all of that passion is in a box pulled out the screen and put in your hands. You can also receive monthly courses spanning popular academic disciplines to inspire and nurture the next generation of curious thinkers, innovators, and inventors. They are delivering a deeper learning experience through AR, VR, and video lessons on the MEL app. Join the curious community on their journey to explore the world, celebrate the amazing, and support brains for the future of our pale blue dot and beyond.